0: John Jay College of Criminal Justice in Manhattan, this is Day of Just Deportees, the official podcast of the social anatomy of a deportation regime. On today's episode, Professor Sarah Tosh from Rutgers University discusses the socio-legal and historical context behind the Crimigration nexus and its contribution to a deportation pipeline predicated on a moral panic of the imagined criminal up.
1: That extreme expansion in 96 of the aggravated felony made it so that a lot more people could be considered having aggravated felonies, so a lot more people become deportable, but it also made it so the results were so much more extreme. So um, after the 96 laws, if you are an undocumented person who has been convicted of an aggravated felony, you can be deported without even going to immigration court, without even seeing an immigration judge.
0: The deportation regime finds its legal justification in immigration court. It is in this space that the full weight of the state's violence is channelled into a formal legal procedure for the sole purpose of the removal of the immigrant. Through the signing of Executive Order 1376-8 in May of 2017, President Trump enlarged the number of deportable immigrants to include all unauthorized immigrants. This combined with other provisions which expanded the application of expedited removals has created a backlog of nearly 700,000 cases in immigration court. Trump's previous Attorney General Jeff Sessions used his short time as the nation's top lawyer to reinforce the deportation infrastructure from the Obama years and to convert it into a slipstream into enforced removal. He also set quotas for the number of cases immigration judges must decide upon each year. The bureaucracy of immigration court is a terrifying and crushing experience, not only for the migrant being removed, but also for the families and law staff tasked with mounting a defense. Today we'll be looking into the current situation in the New York immigration court system and examine the development of criminal justice laws which have created a deportation pipeline, create catching immigrants into a legal dragnet which often results in forced removal. We're also going to look into the struggles that immigration court lawyers face when defending their clients and the way in which they use legal frameworks and their own connections with community members to mount defences of their clients and to secure victories against overwhelming odds. Here to discuss all of that is my colleague, Sarah Tosh. Sarah is a critical researcher interested in the growing intersections between drug, criminal justice and immigration policy in the United States and is a founding member of the Social Anatomy of a Deportation Regime Project at the Center on Social Change and Transgressive Studies at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Her article Drugs, Crime and Aggravated Felony Deportations, Moral Panic Theory and the Legal Construction of the Criminal Alien, recently published in Critical Criminology, explores the development of the Aggravated Felony, an expansive legal category which has led to the deportation of hundreds of thousands of immigrants both documented and undocumented, over the past 30 years. Sarah's dissertation, Defending the Bad Immigrant, Aggravated Felonies, Deportation and Legal Resistance at the Crimigration Nexus, uses archival research, in-depth interviews and ethnographic observations of immigration court to examine the everyday effects of aggravated felony legal categories in today's deportation regime. findings contribute to burgeoning scholarship on crimmigration and illustrate how law creates and reproduces inequality while also serving as a tool to resistance sarah recently received her phd in sociology from the graduate center city university of new york in fall 2019 she will begin a tenure track position as assistant professor in the department of sociology anthropology and criminal justice at rutgers university camden Welcome to They Are Dusty the Portis, Sarah. Or should I say Dr. Tosh? Yeah. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here with you
0: guys today. So um, I'm going to go straight off the bat. Uh, in academia, you know, w- we mentioned in your bio, the term immig- crimigration mm-hmm. has been increasingly used by socio-legal scholars to describe the growing amalgamation right between criminal justice and immigration enforcement policy since the, the civil rights era. Just want to kind of historicize this term. Mm-hmm. Can you expand a little more on this concept and how immigration enforcement, you know, in many ways is a dog whistle term for increased policing and social control over immigrant communities?
1: Yeah, definitely. So crimmigration definitely has been something that's been, this intertwining has been something that's been going on for several decades now, but I really see it as a product of a broader punitive turn in criminal justice, immigration, and drug policy in the late late decades of the 20th century. So, immigration, we could look at it as a product of the same policy shift that brought us tough on crime policing, broken windows policing, the war on drugs, all of this more mass incarceration, right? So, we, this, in the 80s and 90s especially, we saw a lot of policy that was looking to get tough on crime, get tough on drugs, and get tough on immigrants. We must take back to the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting, your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents, it doesn't matter whether or not they were
0: de- Our country is invaded by immigrants who are like cancer cells. They're multiplying, they're destroying everything this country stands for. Our education system, our crime rate in the town where I'm from is 80% illegal immigrants. We're not safe to go out at at night on the streets. Did you know there are over 5 million illegal immigrants in the U.S.? And that you spend five and a half billion dollars a year to support them with welfare, food stamps, and other services.
1: All of this policy turn led to as we know now, a lot of racial disparities in the criminal justice system, and these same racial disparities we see in the immigration system. So it's kind of taken for granted that when we talk about immigration enforcement, we're talking about Latino immigrants, right? Um, over 95% of deportations in the United States are of Latino immigrants, when obviously there's very a diverse amount of immigrants in the United States of various immigrant groups, various racial categories that aren't really Targeted in our immigration system and a large part of that is part of this immigration nexus So the linkages with the criminal justice system ensure that groups that are targeted by the by the criminal justice system are groups that end up um, being more likely to be um, funneled into the deportation system. So definitely Latino immigrants are largely targeted by this but also black immigrants as well and that's some and Afro-Latino immigrants, which is a group that we really don't talk about a lot, but there's growing um, targeting of this group throughout this same era. So, I think these criminal justice system inequalities are really a big focus that we need to look at um, when we're moving forward and talking about immigration enforcement, Um, and yeah, we're planning to do research that will do just that.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I want to talk more about that research um, in a moment. So. We look at the sort of approach in this country to sort of immigration enforcement and the criminalization of different communities who have come in. Um, mentioned the Irish, the Italians, mm-hmm. the Chinese, and various forms of like, um, I don't know, racialized, hyper-racialized tropes yeah. that they get branded with. Definitely. And then a whole sort of, system of bureaucracies institutions and laws come in after those tropes mm-hmm. are branded on them yeah. and they're based on them and 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 they come in and they, they, these systems kind of like uh control and manage these communities so i'm thinking like the rico laws which came in after the moral panic with regards to the la costa nostra and the black hand and mm-hmm. so on and so forth right the chinese exclusion act
1: and you can even talk about i mean it's not only immigration policies also drug policies, right? So the um, I mean the Chinese exclusion act was so related to this whole trope about Chinese immigrants and opium, Mexicans and marijuana, are we prohibition, you know, ideas around the Italian immigrants and the mafia. So it's definitely nothing new for the we to see these linkages yeah. criminality being a really important
0: part of the trope. And marijuana is the is actually the term is that actually a racially charged yeah. term, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So in the nineteen thirties
1: when we first Um, criminalize or prohibited marijuana in the United States. It was completely based on this trope that Mexican immigrants are using the drug and there's this whole drug panic surrounding it. And that's why we use the word marijuana, which is the Spanish, which actually I don't even know if technically is the actual Spanish word, but definitely the word that was picked up and Mm, was this word that sounded Spanish. So therefore it became... What we call it now. So people are kind of moving away from it towards cannabis, you know. But yeah, definitely. Long history of this in the United States. But it is important to point out that even though we do have a long history of the criminalization of immigrants and this whole criminal alien trope and all the racialized um, things that go with that, this era is distinct due to the extent of the criminalization, the extent of the detention, and the extent of the deportation. So just like mass incarceration, you know, is since the 80s, 90s, and up to the present, U.S., it became the most incarcerating country in the world. We also surpassed our levels of deportation beyond what we ever could have thought of in the 20th century. So from 1900 to 1990, I don't think we ever surpassed 40,000 deportations a year, whereas in the 2000s, our, we've averaged over 200,000 deportations per year. So it's an extremely different, you know, scope that we're talking about
0: here. Yeah. Just piggybacking off what you were saying with regards to marijuana mm-hmm. and increased um, incarceration rates. 1996, he plays the saxophone. <laughs> he did not inhale, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bill Clinton's in office, right? And yeah. he passes the 1996 illegal immigration reform and immigrant Responsibility Act, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, Ira, Ira's, Ira, IRA IRAs, We, as you say, is an acronym. This is a like this is like a watershed moment, right? Mm-hmm. This is like a really big moment in immigration enforcement, and I think the only real big moment before this was the um, the amnesty that 86. that '86 that Reagan Russia. passes, yeah. which is really really related, just to making sure that that reserve army of labor is is in the United States. Mm-hmm. But with with regards to Ira, Ira. How does this fit in with your research on criminal deportations? How did this sort of change the nature of the game and lead to the current situation that which we have at the moment?
1: So yeah, so 96 is extremely important. IRA, IRA, but also um, the Amer- AEDPA. I'm not even going to try to remember yeah. exactly the title of it. But those two big laws that were passed that year um, definitely was a watershed moment for immigration reform. I think it's important to note that a lot of the stuff that was really um, made full in IRA IRA and made full in 1996 were things that were kind of coming into play throughout the 90s. So, for example, the aggravated felony, which is what my research um, is on, is a really good example of this because it was a category that was... Um, created in 1988 by the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. So it was not in an immigration law, it was in um, an anti-drug law, right? And it, but it's an immigration category, right? So it created this category of crimes that immigrants could be deported for, um, both documented and undocumented immigrants. Um, The first, in the original manifestation, it's three crimes, um, murder, drug trafficking, and arms trafficking. So this is even though this seems a pretty limited law when it first started, right? It's the kind of the beginning of putting making criminal this link between criminal justice and immigration reform. I mean, and immigration policy. So making criminal um, charges and criminal convictions deportable, right? So not that we haven't had any history of this in the United States, but this is definitely the. The beginning of the extreme expansion of it. So throughout the 1990s, this category was expanded. So it was, began in 1986, but it was throughout. There were a few different laws throughout the 90s, both immigration laws, but mostly criminal justice policy that really that started to expand this category, make it more, make its um, results more extreme. 1996, they really blew it apart and made this category ex- include such a wide variety of things. So now you could be Um, you could have an aggravated felony that's not actually a felony actually it could be a misdemeanor with a one-year sentence or an up so it could someone could get a one-year sentence for shoplifting that could be an aggravated felony fraud is a big one um, that people can get it for so fraud over ten thousand dollars but if you know if you play a small part in a larger fraud welfare fraud is something people often get it for Um, you know, put their income a little higher than it's supposed to be, usually people who are already struggling. Um, drug crimes are a huge part of it, and it includes all drug trafficking, but drug trafficking can mean so many things. Um, it could be someone sold $10 of crack or someone right. shared drugs with a friend. And the Clinton drug laws, obviously, exactly. just so swept people in through this. Completely. So this is something that's really... a. Pro- that's what I really wanted to emphasize when we are talking about immigration, right? It's a the product of these same punitive... Policy shift. So, this came out of drug policy, right? Mm. This is all part of the same thing. So, we need to fight crime and we need to fight immigration. And immigrants are bringing crime and immigrants are bringing drugs. It's all part of this. And which immigrants are the ones who are doing, right? Black and Latino immigrants are the ones who are targeted. So, it's definitely part of the same panic, moral panic, as you said before, um, but also actually the exact same laws, right? So, if it wasn't for that anti drug law, that's what created it and if it wasn't for the more intense laws in the first place that are making people have so many more convictions um, pushing for more militarized policing of mostly black and brown neighborhoods right this this is people are getting pulled and um, sucked up into this dragnet so that extreme expansion in 96 of the aggravated felony made it so that a lot more people could be considered having aggravated felonies so a lot more people become deportable but it also made it so the results were so much more extreme so um, after the 96 laws, if you're an undocumented person who has been convicted of an aggravated felony, you can be deported without even going to immigration court, without even seeing an immigration judge, which is already, even in immigration court, um, there's so many things lacking in terms of due process because of the um, civil and administrative um, status of immigration law as opposed to criminal law. So it's already a very difficult forum to fight your deportation. but people with aggravated felonies who are undocumented are completely now cut off from, or many of them can become cut off from that. They can be expedited, removed through a process of expedited administrative removal. Um, So that was a huge, you know, thing that happened throughout the 90s that has led to some of the numbers we have today in terms of deportation. And then for people who aren't um, undocumented, mostly green card holders, legal permit lawful permanent residents a group that a lot of people don't even know can be deported right they can be deported and are op- mostly deported based on criminal um convictions so either aggravated felonies crimes of moral turpitude which is an even a more amorphous and you know difficult to pin yeah. down category which can include even more things and then um drug all drug crimes. So even if it's not drug tra- trafficking, you know, possession is still a controlled substance offense and that's a de- deportable offense. But aggravated felony cuts off most things. So definitely in those 96 laws, they made it so that really you're cut off from almost all forms of re- legal relief from deportation. So for lawful permanent residents and other long-term residents in the United States, it's extremely that it has such an extreme effect because there used to be um, forms of relief in place where you could show your connections to the United States, show your connections to your community, show that since this crime, since this conviction you've rehabilitated, that you, you know, any circumstances that make it so that to show like why you still, you know, deserve to be here Um, and really the 96 laws removed all of that, while also the last thing they did, which was really extreme, is make it retroactive. So people who were convicted of it something that was an aggravated fel- became an aggravated felony in the 96 laws, even if it was in the 90s before that, they could then be retroactively deported for an aggravated felony. So people, you know, we even have today, people who are being deported for crimes they committed 10, 20 years ago, they show people who even could show, you know, extreme rehabilitation you know used to be have a drug abuse problem and have literally rehabilitated or you know they did their time for their crime and they've like have a family all of these different things they definitely I feel like those there's still people who are being deported for things that were years and years later and the judges are completely their hands are tied. There's very little they can do because they've taken away so much discretion. So they've taken away the ability to include factors, like that I was talking about, like rehabilitatory factors. So, definitely those laws had a huge effect for people with criminal records, Um, and throughout the 2000s, we saw extreme, an extreme increase in deportation, and the 96 laws really have a lot to show, or a big reason for it, but it is important to note that they are a combination of Policies that were already going...
0: In motion, yeah. Yeah,
1: definitely. And also just a policy environment and a rhetoric that really penalizes people with criminal records.
0: I feel that with Clinton and the drug laws and the punitive immigration laws that came about in the Mm -hmm. mid-90s, I feel that he looked to his predecessor, you know, not his predecessor, but previous Democratic um, presidential candidates or nominees, um, like Dukakis, right, Mm -hmm. who got absolutely wiped out by Bush because he was presented as being someone who was soft on crime because of a The Day release Mm -hmm. controversy. And Clinton and his campaign team saw that they needed to drag the party further to the right on law and order. And so they responded with these really harsh, harsh, harsh uh, laws, right? And then Bush comes in and he st- he implements an increase in workplace rates. Mm-hmm. You know, this this increases yeah. w- with Bush and then Obama comes in and he goes even further to the right than Clinton. Right. Uh, uh, and now Trump comes uh, in and he. So yeah. every time pro- so-called progressive forces in the country go to the right mm-hmm. on on immigration uh, enforcement, um, um, Republican administrations which follow them even push the envelope even further to the right. Yeah. And so this is a question I often in my, my classes, a, a student will say, well, they've broken the law. It doesn't matter how much weed they've got. It doesn't matter how many turnstiles they've, 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 they've jumped over. These are the laws of the country and they, they should leave. How do you sort of respond to that? Like these, these critiques that actually we should just be even even no matter what laws they've broken, they, sh- they should still be removed for being a yeah
1: i mean i think so just to say uh, one thing back to what you were saying about um this kind of shift that we've had so clinton coming in, i think it's important to remember it's not just right the president that's in power and i think it's these bigger forces we we're yeah. talking about. so this moral panic and how did that affect the conversation and this punitive shift we we're talking about so i think um the article that you mentioned my article in critical criminology is actually looking at moral panic about immigrant criminality and linking immigrants and crime and drugs and how that was in the drew on wider societal forces at the time to become something that was so symbolically strong that got people to support such punitive laws so punitive immigration laws punitive um, criminal justice policy criminal ju- punitive drug policy so a lot of these things it's they were there's was a societal shift right towards this culture of culture of control as david garland puts it this tough on crime ethos this And it also has to do with this ethos of personal responsibility that's really indicative of the neoliberal era that really began in the 1980s and became so strong and still goes on today. And this idea that, right, just like what your students are saying, this ethos that people are to blame for what happens, Mm -hmm. people are to blame for their actions. Crime is not a result of structural problems in society and poverty or any of these things, which before this and up until the 1970s really there was a more rehabilitatory model of um, criminal justice, right, and the, this idea that still there was some basis, and even when it came to immigration policy, there was more of a focus on amnesty, and, you know, what are people, the people are fleeing difficult situations, we need to give them asylum, families being reunited, and the 86 IRCA was, like, at least somewhat pretended or seemed to be aimed at things like that, and that was much more of the national climate and really we had this such an extreme shift throughout the reagan era and throughout the 80s and 90s where there was such intense support for more punitive policies and this idea that people are to blame and that people you know if someone commits a crime i don't care what you know poor neighborhood they live in or what conditions they're fleeing you commit a crime that's your fault and you deserve the punishment right and you deserve extreme punishment whether it be incarceration or, you know life in prison for a drug yeah. crime or deportation deportation right lived in your whole life so i think that it's definitely a wider mental shift and yeah. also what became politically viable so it's not just clinton yeah they, the democrats clinton and the democrats in congress right or these laws are these laws were passed um right in a democratic congress and you know so i, although I'm not, I don't actually know if in 96 was democratic or not but throughout the 1990s there was definitely people democrats and republicans bipartisan support for these laws and the biggest thing that i really think it's important to remember is and this has a lot to do with obama as well but this good immigrant bad,
0: bad immigrant, immigrant right yeah
1: drove both political the political conversations on mm-hmm. the topic so for the republicans or people who are more conservative or like i mean like we see today with trump more kind of everyone has this idea that immigrants are inherently cri- criminal and that, therefore, we they all you know are suspect and we need to deport in mass numbers. But the other side of that isn't saying, no, immigrants are not criminals. It's saying, oh, some immigrants are criminals and we need to get rid of those ones, right? And I think that that's really what has driven the immigration. That's what has driven the policy that we've ended up with. So this fighting from this basis that immigrants who are criminal in any way or have any criminal record should therefore be deportable is a big statement in a criminal justice system of our size and extent where we have the most incarcerating country in the world. There's so many people who are wrapped up in our criminal justice system. I mean, and even people who aren't wrapped up in the criminal justice system, we're all breaking, like everyone.
0: Exactly. Here. I mean, you normal, can, right? you can, you can get deported for carrying an amount of weed which you could actually be smoking legally maybe a state over in this country, actually, right? Well, you,
1: yeah. you can technically be deported for legally working in a dispensary in a state where weed is legal. Immigration laws are federal. So that's, that's actually a huge, I mean, drug, it's hugely upsetting. And I think something that we really...
0: Just the to, contradictions are just yeah, mind boggling. You know, yeah.
1: people really want to think like, oh, the war on drugs is ending, you know, we're legalizing marijuana, everyone can smoke. People are still being deported for drug crimes very frequently. Um, and obviously, we know that there's black and brown people from this country and not from this country who are incarcerated and detained based on drug crimes to this day. So it's definitely not like all well and good. It's a huge driver of deportation and a huge driver of you know just the punitive policies that we're looking at. For me, even when it comes down to whether it's a small or big crime, I think we also still need to look at the structural, you know, forces that drive this. I mean, cartel control in Latin America is largely shaped and the countries that it is there is narco cartel control of, it's largely shaped by US policies around the region. So people are fleeing cartels that are empowered by the first of all the huge black market for drugs, right, that drives up prices hugely and that makes it profitable for cartels to even exist, which is created by U.S. drug policies. And also the fact that around the region, you know, the U.S. has wor- used drug um, interdiction and drug policing around the region really to interfere a lot with the things that are going on in other countries. And they've used not the only thing they've used to interfere in Latin America mm. and the Caribbean, right? But it's definitely one way they have. Definitely. We're seeing the results of that as people are fleeing narco con- control and then are ironically coming to the United States where they're then can be deported for, you know, there's people who are forced to carry drugs over the border because of cartels, right? That the US has in some ways empowered and then they're absolutely dead the US and are deported and are exempt from asylum and are not because that's considered an aggravated felony, right? So you are cut off from asylum, you're cut off from all of these things that are put in place to help people exactly like that. But President Trump putting on notice millions of undocumented immigrants, including those who have been charged with a crime, even if they've not been convicted. We are going to get the bad ones out, the criminals and the drug
0: deals and gangs and gang members and cartel leaders the day is over when they can stay in our country and wreak havoc.
1: It's extremely ironic and extremely cruel policy. I mean, you also see people who are deported after cooperating with the U.S. government. So people who cooperate with U.S. drug enforcement and get, you know, let's say someone, I mean, not just say let's say, I sat in for my research on case after case like this, where you see people, right, who come from, who worked, you know, did some low level drug dealing, whether it was here or in their previous country, then were convicted of a drug crime, right, served their time, cooperated with the U.S. government, and, you know, were able to indict higher up cartel people, sometimes very high up cartel people, and then are facing deportation in the United States and are often deported back to places where they're going to be killed for cooperating. So it's an extremely mind-bending system and it's something when I came into it and started observing this type of thing, I wouldn't have really believed and it's something that you see. And like the fact that someone cooperated with one branch of the U.S. government and then is being deported to most likely their death. If you're being deported for being a snitched where there's complete cartel control, you know, I mean, where the poli- these in you know, certain places, you know, Places like Dominican Republic Mexico the cartels are the governing force right and the police is completely wrapped up with it as well so people are being deported to situations that are definitely extremely dangerous so it's you see the way these things intersect right so drug policing and drug policy is then intersecting so extremely with immigration policy in but the immigration system does not recognize that and doesn't doesn't take any. There's no leniency based on that, so it's extremely um yeah it's an extremely fraught situation definitely
0: well, one of the one of the protections right that mm-hmm. undocumented migrants are supposed to or not supposed to but one of them one of the protections that they are seen to enjoy in urban centers like new york chicago l a uh which have predominantly you know uh well, these cities have predominantly um um democratic Mm -hmm. legislatures and 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 mayors and and policy makers and so forth is this concept of sanctuary right Mm -hmm. i this this concept that local law enforcement will minimize and the 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 the, the emphasis is on the term minimize their engagement with federal immigration enforcement agencies Mm -hmm. like ice immigration and customs enforcement um uh and, and, and this is this is supposed to lead to, to sort of a sanctuary space, particularly when the government comes in, that will be more hell-bent, shall we say, on removing as many people as possible. To what extent is sanctuary in New York in particular? To what extent is it an adequate protection?
1: Yeah, so I think one thing that's important to remember is I think we think sanctuary city is like some... Um, actual label that you know you have it means you do this this Mm. this, this. sanctuary I mean it's more of an informal label obviously it means it has a lot of like political meaning and it's there's a whole movement around it and all these things but really what it means is that it's a city that is in some way has certain policies in place to protect immigrants that could mean a whole vast
0: amount of things so when Fox News says sanctuary cities are overrun with Uh, criminals and gangbangers and whatever
1: you know that's a way that they use i mean it's a it's obviously a rhetoric and it's not just fox news saying that trump says they use this as a reason to increase enforcement in those places that they see as defying federal immigration policy but just like you were saying i mean just like as you were asking i mean so my research is in new york city um and there are things there are certain important sanctuary policies in place in New York City. So we have, um, you know, the the New York City refuse the detainer laws that um, New York City jails are um, prohibited from honoring ICE detainers. So they can't give hold people for ICE after they're released from criminal justice custody, um, which is something that's a very, very common way across the country of people coming into ICE custody is that they're directly transferred from, you know, correction, the whatever Department of Corrections custody to ICE. Um, So that's very common around the country. We don't do that. ICE presence was removed from Rikers Island, the biggest jail in the city. Um, So they're not directly there, which they are in jails right around the country. Um, The NYPD is prohibited from directly engaging in immigration enforcement. Um, So I'll end most importantly is something that I feel very... I was really a focus of my research and I think is really important is a knife up program on um, the New York the New York family <laughs> New York immigrant family unity project which is a um, a program a very unique program around the country um one thing we've touched on I feel like throughout this but I don't know just to make sure people know um, the big difference between immigration law federal immigration law um, and criminal law which is there's federal and then there's state law as well Um, But criminal law is its own category, with its own due process requirements, whereas immigration law is administrative civil law, so it doesn't have the same requirements of criminal law, the main one being legal representation, being a huge one. So immigrants are not guaranteed legal representation throughout the country, right? And actually, actually I wrote it down so I remember, um, 14% of detained immigrants around the whole country have legal representation, 34% of all immigrants. So 14 detained, 34% of all immigrants are secure legal representation. So the vast majority are facing deportation without any legal representation. This is from adults down to unaccompanied minors and children who are facing immigration judges. Immigration law is widely known among lawyers and legal experts to be an extremely, extremely Um, complicated and difficult body of law. It's not easy at all. It's, I (laughs) had to learn some for my dissertation and it's extremely complex. It's definitely not something people can do on their own, let alone in another language, let alone while detained. Um, It's extremely difficult. So New York is the only city around the country that since 2014, 2013 I think was the pilot, and 2014 it was spread, um, knife up program started um, offering universal representation to all immigrants facing all detained immigrants facing deportation in New York City. So, if you are a certain level below the legal, the um, or at a certain level of poverty, I don't I forget the exact numbers. You are guaranteed legal representation if you are detained um, and facing deportation. So, since this program was put in place in New York City, knife-up lawyers have seen forty-eight percent success of defending against people's deportation compared to. Four percent success in pre- in the similar cases in the same court in previous years, so it definitely makes a huge impact. I think that's one of like the big calling cards of New York as a sanctuary city, having this program. But still, sa- these things only mean so much for immigrants with criminal records. So the detainer laws the policy is that you can the um, New York City jails will not hold people and directly transfer them to ICE. Hmm. Um, or hold people like and wait for ice to come pick them up so that applies but only you new york will not so it's called a detainer ice issues a detainer requesting yeah and then they say whether they're gonna so they will not honor detainers from ice except for people on a list of 170 serious crimes it's very expensive i don't know like 170
0: crimes i don't know dr tosh did air quotes serious. there on yeah. serious uh yeah
1: you can go check out the list yourself it, it includes a lot of things
0: moral uh, turpitude i think's on there yeah, right I mean, yeah moral yeah
1: turpitude, so a lot of things that we consider aggravated felonies and knife up itself right so our progressive mayor de blasio tried to two years ago i think to remove knife up funding for people on the list of 170 crimes moral,
0: bill 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 enough. yeah
1: funding, you know, legal representation for people on that list, right? And it's a universal representation program. That's the whole point. That's why it works. That's why it's effective, because otherwise these are cases that will not be taken by other legal providers. So it's definitely this good immigrant, bad immigrant thing still comes into play, even in these policies that are really put in place to protect people with
0: criminal records, right? So that's a big New Yorkers, factor. right? New yeah. Yorkers who've been here for decades and many, many. Absolutely. Got, yeah, yeah, you know. Half of the, I grew up in Brooklyn.
1: Half of the kids I went to high school with were like green card holders. Yeah. A lot of people don't always want to change. their crazy to think, but a lot of people don't want to be U.S. citizens. Right? Attachment to the country they came from. Sure. They don't realize people don't even realize that that's something that could happen to them. So definitely affects a wide variety of people. And I think. But I think what's really important is even despite all of these sanctuary policies, those are policies that are affecting the immigration system, right? We need to look at our criminal justice system because New York City is still, right, the home to the largest
0: police force in the country. testing ground for all sorts of militarized policing tactics Mm
1: -hmm. um, and has been, you know, broken windows policing, which is the focus on small quality of life crimes, so like drug possession, Mm. you know, long turn style jumping yeah. and little things, right? People being picked up for public drinking, right? I was just... I went to immigration for for someone who was being deported based on a previous crime and he had been picked up and brought back into the system based on public drinking, right? Drinking outside his building, which I have a feeling and actually I don't have a feeling. I know for a fact they're not picking up white people in Park Slope for drinking yep. their students, No, right? yeah. I mean, or drinking in the park yep. drinking wine, right? This is, you know, he's a Dominican man in Washington Heights. Yep. And, you know hanging outside his building with his friends, right? So this is definitely the way our criminal justice system works, whether we are a sanctuary city or not, it's putting people in the, in the crossfires of immigration enforcement. So there's still an extreme, it's, it's part of this same, you know, mechanism that's ter, that's picking people up. And that's the still, like, throughout the country, I mean, the majority, or the most important way, I, from my research is really how it seems, it's the most important way that people are brought into the immigration system is through criminal justice enforcement. It's really a super common way that people are brought into, the, um, you know, brought into like even the scope of ICE, or even brought into their attention, right? So people can be living peacefully for years, right? And then it's that criminal justice contact that often is the thing that brings them into ICE's purview so I think in New York City that's a huge problem that we need to address and I think that recently you have seen we have seen a lot of advocacy in New York um, that's really paying more attention to these issues and I think there's some extremely um, you know organizations that saw this happening since 96 and really got out ahead of it in New York City which is largely why we do have some of the sanctuary policies we have so like knife up and other things like that were really the result of advocates in New York City who saw these connections. So organizations like Immigrant Defense Project has been incredible. Like they, I mean, their founder who was a legal aid lawyer who, when the 96 laws hit, he saw how much those laws were going to affect his clients. He was a legal aid criminal defense lawyer and saw how much it was going to affect his clients and then, you know, started this organization that now really has been the leader in on a lot of these issues. Um, and families for freedom is another one of like families coming together and saying you know you're taking people from our communities based on this criminal record that's the, that's based on an extremely racist and you know militarized criminal justice system. So I think New York has definitely been on the forefront of advocacy that's led to some of the things we have today but there's still a big fight and I think even the progressive politicians air quotes again are not always really fighting for these groups. And I think it's really easy to say, we're going to throw people with criminal records under the, you yeah. know, because why, like, if we're protecting anyone, why don't we protect the people who aren't criminals? But I think yeah. we really need to interrogate what it means to be criminal for anyone, but let alone this idea of criminal aliens and criminal immigrants. Yeah, case.
0: and what kind of a society drives people to Yeah, to and to then do. also, I'm
1: like, what, if it even more, so i think for serious crimes i think we definitely need to question like, where is this all coming from on a bigger level but yeah. also for some of the minor things yeah it's like, it's like why, why, why is
0: it, it is even thinking yeah it's why is he criminalizing, criminalizing the, yeah. or why is it criminalized for
1: some people and not, and for, not, others? not for others you Yeah. That that's you are listening to they are just deportees the official podcast of the social anatomy of deportation regime can find more information about us and our events at www.sadrjohnjay.com.
0: your research um which we've spoken about before is this courtroom ethnography right you, you and I, I feel the more i read your work and some of the work that professor david brotherton has been doing you can sort of portion out uh, this country's, the way it inflicts violence on the immigrant and in, in this specific instance, the undocumented migrant. And there's the very visceral or and very, Oh, the undocumented, undocumented, right. undocumented. Right. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's the very visceral and very sort of um, tweetable violence that you see at the border with the incarceration of children or the ice raids, when they get captured on film, yeah. it's very brutal. It's a, a, a yeah, They're like heavy-handed that. and they're really yeah. not nice, right? Yeah. But the sort of violence of the state kind of finds this liberal consecration and validity in immigration court. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of this violence uh, gets missed out in liberal commentary yeah. on the deportation regime. And you've done so much work, ethnographic work in, in Immigration Court. I'm wondering if you can just sort of like paint a picture mm-hmm, uh, for us, what it is like inside Immigration Court, what, you, what you're likely to see. But so you've, you've Varick Street and...
1: Federal Plaza. So I think what's really important in New York, we have two immigration courts, right? So we have twenty six Federal Plaza, which is much larger. That's where most of the cases are and that's where most affirmative cases go so they have deportation cases but also affirmative cases so people who are you know petitioning for citizenship or asylum and all of these things right or a green card all of these things. Um, Varick Street Court is a smaller court it's much more hidden it's on the 11th floor of a I think the 11th I haven't been there in a few months but I'm pretty sure it's the 11th floor of a you know high-rise building yeah it looks like an office very innocuous, very innocuous yeah. building in the west village like i we lived here my whole life i walked down that street plenty of times never really knew what it was until i started going for immigration court you would never know it's up there um and i think the biggest thing about it so that's a detained court that's where anyone who's detained in we don't have detention centers in new york city for um adult immigrants but we, I don't know, there was some rumors that we were detaining some children around the city. I don't know the details on that, but as far as I know, most immigrants detained in New York City are housed at detention centers. Detention centers, again, quotes, because a lot of these detention centers are really housed in county and state ga- um, jails. So we um, like Hudson Jail in um, New Jersey, Elizabeth Jail. So, And then a couple in upstate New York are really where most of the um, immigrants who are being deported from New York City are housed while they're being detained. So immigrants with criminal records are the most likely to be detained. Most um, aggravated felonies and other criminal grounds of deportation now in, now come with mandatory detention with in with no no guarantee of bail, no guarantee of a bail hearing. So it used to be that at least you got a bail hearing. Um, some big. Supreme Court decisions over the past few years during the first couple of years of the Trump administration now got rid of that. So you're not guaranteed a hearing. People are, I mean, I went to cases that would go on for, through, I have, I was doing this research for a year and only one case that I was um, following was concluded during that time.
0: And what's that, it, what's, I mean, what's the ambiance so like? So it's like and
1: extremely criminalizing environment. I mean, I think that that's what's really interesting about the detained court is that people are literally coming they're literally brought well they used to be brought to court in their jumpsuits in their handcuffs hands shackled at the weight to their waist um not ankles usually but hands shackled to the waist and you know jumpsuit is not really
0: often these are non-violent offenders quote unquote offenders right
1: yeah these are often i mean most often they're drug offenders yeah by far the most common and sometimes they are violent offenders but sometimes that violence was you know a fist fight between yeah. two I went to one recently. It was like a fist fight between two roommates, right? And again, yeah. I'm not saying I'm nonviolent person, I guess, but it's like yeah, yeah. that It's like should this lead to yeah? And often these are crimes, and it's not only that the crimes themselves are minor or not minor or all these different things. It's they people have already served time in the criminal justice system for the crimes. So this is another outcome, another layer, yeah after the, you know, punishment. So people have been incarcerated and then served probation and then served parole or whatever, and they were released from the criminal justice system, were living back in the... Often, were living back in their community very peacefully and then are being detained and not given bail because they're a danger to the community or, like they say, they're a danger to the community or they're a flight risk. But, you know, as their lawyers and the advocates will say, how can you say someone's a danger to the community... And they've been living in the community for years with no problems since the original conviction. So it's definitely a very skewed system. And then detention itself is seen as called administrative detention, and deportation is administrative removal. So the argument of the immigration system is that it's not punitive, it's not not punishment, when obviously it is. People are being held in the same detention, in jails and prisons, right? And people are being banished and told never to that they can never return from their homeland, and often sent to places where they'll be put in, in extreme danger, whether it was for cooperating or just for being a deportee. There's many places that are people are extremely scapegoated and extremely yeah. marginalized just for being a deportee. Just been removed. It's seen as you know, this is a place that already has you know economic problems, and you you left and had this big opportunity to go to the United States, and then you screwed it up by being a criminal, right? This is idea that sometimes is before it. So definitely a criminalizing environment. The When you come in there, it's it seems almost impossible for someone to get a fair trial when they're so viewed as a criminal. They often, very often cannot speak the language, right? They work through translators who only give them very, small amount of what's actually going on so that's a problem definitely and then we in New York City we've come even further from that um, last summer when they stopped bringing people to court at all so people are now um, testifying from the detention centers on tele- on video screens so they're not only are they this you know criminalized being in the courtroom in their orange jumpsuit, but they're a criminalized being in an orange jumpsuit in
0: just completely disembodied yeah.
1: And they it's so difficult for them to understand what's going on. It just is this very like feels like this processing, this meat market processing. And I think being there, it's such a surreal environment because often I'd be the only observer, even though it's technically open, it's very closed off. You wouldn't know it's open. It's very, you know, isolating and isolated and the way that things go on in court, the judge is I mean the judge and the the um, the government lawyer are both from you know the state and are both from really the same branch of government and are both representing the same branch of government and often the judges themselves used to be government lawyers and then become immigration judges so, And then you have the immigrant and then their lawyer, because in New York City, they're guaranteed one, you know, which is very often, very often not the case. Mm. And they're still up against a system that's really just so extremely pushed against them, especially if you have a criminal record. And there's just such little chance of avoiding deportation, even with these very creative arguments and things that... Um, the lawyers have come up with in New York City you know they've developed up because they've been working on these difficult criminal cases have developed such institutional expertise and these very unique um, you know interesting and different strategies it's still they're up against so much and they're constantly just fighting for like the little bit of dignity and due process for their clients and you're they're treated as though they're being crazy for you know saying oh can the translator translate things for my client and it's like oh they're holding everything up and everyone's rolls their eyes at the lawyer or like oh can we not have these plainclothes clothes ice officers in the room watching this trial when it's like
0: complete intimidation, intimidation. Yeah, yeah yeah and all of this
1: this was in a case of someone who'd been de- wrongly deported by ice previously and then they had them just there for no reason and you know the lawyers are like fighting for this and you see just the way the judges and then the government lawyers respond as so oh my god what a nuisance as if they're the ones kind of like holding up this system and keeping it from working when it's the way it's supposed to work when really it's not I mean I see what they're doing as a form of legal resistance and some of the things they developed as a form of re- legal resistance but really they they view themselves and they are just working within the law completely you know just, these
0: are the immigration defense yeah, attorneys the,
1: lawyers, the defense attorneys themselves yeah they are you know working within the they're not like coming up with yeah. things out of left field they're just like saying hey these are and honestly these rights are already limited but these are the rights yeah. that they are supposed to have right not just like they're not asking for more you know they're working within what's given to them and it's still this treatment is it's an extremely contentious environment and just this feeling as though like you're I'm sitting there I I, I remember writing down like institutional gaslighting because it's this idea that like these lawyers are being treated, being treated as though they're crazy for like asking something that's so normal and baseline and you know in other systems of justice in the criminal justice system right you know these things these due process things that are and it's not like our criminal justice system is known for being, you know, fair. Progressive, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think it's definitely, it's a, it's not what people would expect, and it's something that I think need we need to observe more. I mean, bringing people, classes should go, students should go, researchers should go, and civilians should go. But I do think that it's it's an extremely difficult environment to be up against, and it's not it's not like a system of justice by any means that if any that anyone could really I don't think anyone any lawyers really could look at this system or any like experts on law or justice could look at this system and say that this is operating in a just and fair way or giving immigrants a fair chance at you know proving that they're deserving of not being banished from the united states yeah detained for months while doing it so that
0: violence that you're talking about, yeah so layered right and yeah. this the, the mendacity of the bureaucracy as well is just yeah. i mean i was at the yeah i mean i can't stand being at the dmv all day and, and it is yeah. and it's like that times the no. trillion you know it's like that you're waiting for a decision on something that Will define the rest of your life, and right? Go and and like, that's. You have
1: your hearing and then you know it goes through all this. It's like takes all day for nothingness. And yeah. Like, okay, now we can reschedule it for like four months from now for the next one, and it's like okay, four months from now we're all writing it down, and it's like okay, but this person's going back to detention for four months. Yeah. You know, and they've already been detained for six months, and then they're going. You know. Exactly. It, yeah. So it's extremely, and I think what you you really hit them down the nail on the head when you say the DMV. I mean, there's been like um, immigration judges who have compared it to saying that it's like trying a death penalty case in traffic court because the bureaucracy and the administrativeness and the act like acting as though this is just like so routine while these are such extreme and complex and intense cases where you're huge ramifications yeah yeah, such extreme outcomes and so people's lives on the lines their families lives on the lines and like the drama of the families being there and just Mm. like The emotion of the families compared to the you know cut and dryness of the court it's and you can't even call it like a the judges don't even really have much say in most of these things it's like if you have this you know you're cut off from all these things so it is what it is and there's nothing we can do um so yes it's definitely a depressing
0: well i don't want to i want to i want to finish soon but i don't want to finish on such a negative note i want to talk more about a lot of your work on legal resistance, because you mentioned it just a moment ago. And I'm wondering, under the current administration, you know, the last Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, was hellbent, right, on just piling quotas on immigration court judges Mm -hmm. and just rolling back 20 or 30 years of asylum law, basically. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how immigration court lawyers and when I read a lot of their testimonies it's really incredible the kind of work that they do and the extra work miles that they go for very little very very little little money in comparison to what a lot of their contemporaries are probably doing in mergers and acquisitions or whatever right yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah exactly I'm just wondering how for for the listeners how legal resistance actually manifests itself in the courtroom and how it sort of bleeds out into base building and organizing in the community more generally and how you've seen it. I think
1: there's like, there's, you know, obviously there's a lot of arguments about like organizing and whether change can come from within the system or needs to come from outside and obviously lawyers are within the system but I think they really have shown, especially when you look at Knife Up in New York and those numbers I was talking about before the extreme increase that's, I mean, because it's just really this base level thing that should be provided by the state, right? People should be given, People are given, provided lawyers, you know, in criminal court because that's what we believe creates an equal and fair system of justice. And in immigration, they're not. So it's really just a baseline of creating even some semblance of fairness, um, which I think can be a problem, as you were saying before, with this kind of liberal idea that, like, okay, that's all the fairness that is needed, when really it's already there's all this injustice written into the system itself. So I think that's something, there's a lot more needed besides lawyers, but I do think the lawyers are often on the front lines, especially what we're seeing in New York City. Um, the knife-up lawyers are, are um, at you know the New York Public Defense Agency, so New York Legal Aid, Brooklyn Defenders, Bronx Defenders, and they are able to work not only, what I think is really special about it is they're not only able to help defend immigrants but also having immigration lawyers and it's not just the knife up lawyers there's other ones as well and this is a huge thing form of resistance in new york city and some of the state um is there's lawyers that are advising directly the criminal defense lawyers who have immigrant clients on whether something is going to be deportable or not so it's doing it before people even get the conviction right so ninety 5% I think of criminal cases and in plea deals so it's often you're you know arguing for a plea and people there was a long time right where people were pleading to things that would then make them deportable without even knowing right so there's been there have been like key court cases that have made it so that people are like have a right to that advice whether they're getting it in most of the country seems to be not that people are not getting that advice and in New York that's really institutionalized and I think that in itself is a huge form of resistance as well you know having this happen up front is something that people have talked about is making a huge difference um but i think also it's just really important to remember that these lawyers are i see them they're they're so ingrained in the advocacy that has i'm not saying the lawyers themselves all see themselves as advocates Advocates, although obviously in some way they're an advocate for their client Mm. they don't all they all see themselves as that is their job that is their i mean all the ones I interviewed. I interviewed forty lawyers for this for my dissertation research um, in New York City, and you know they do talk about it as though like they're doing their job. They're not like, not all of them. A few of them definitely see themselves as an activist as well and do other work, activism work. But they're not like, oh, I'm trying to fight the deportation system. They're like, I'm trying to represent my clients. I'm trying to uphold the law. Right. A lot of them see themselves like that. But really. Them being there is a form of resistance because it's a system that's set up to work without them, and they're kind of putting a wrench in it in some ways. And I think that it's a result of advocacy. So it really has been the result of advocacy organizations fighting for that um, coverage and then continuing to continuing to fight for it over the past few years. Right as they've tried to cut it, but also creating the support for not only the knife up lawyers but for lawyers across the board so there's so many resources and things like that that advocacy groups have created um to make it easier for people to like protect immigrants from deportation whether it be at the criminal court level or at the immigration court level so i think It's one aspect of a bigger web of resistance, but I do think it's vital, and I think that it's been—it's something that like advocacy groups should fight for throughout the country. Obviously, funding is very, very difficult to get, and that's the biggest um, obstacle for you know other cities that want to do similar programs. But it where like resources can be you know put in that way, or for expanded. legal representation it just has been shown statistically
0: shown to have an extreme effect so i think it's important and we need to fight to keep it and to expand it throughout the country definitely yeah yeah um i think we'll leave it there thank you so much for joining us dr tosh <laughs> that was our show they're just deportees is the official podcast of the social anatomy of a deportation regime at john jay college I was your host, Nick Rodrigo. Financial assistance for this podcast was provided by the Office for the Advancement of Research, John Jay College. We'll see you next time.